Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. God, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for your word. Father, may it never be said of us that we know so much that we can't receive that we've been in so many church services, that we've read the Bible so much, that we've sang all the songs and been to all the uh, iterations of, of Western Christianity, that we stop becoming like you, stop becoming open-hearted and open-minded to change and be transformed. So God, today, may that be our focus, fixated upon you, recognizing that when we stare upon the Creator, it's the Creator who creates Anything created in our own ways pales in comparison to what can be created in him. So, Father, we thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, and the church said. Amen. Amen. So with that, if you did not know, uh, I, we took kind of a little break. And what I mean by that is... Um, a few weeks ago, we started a sermon series, and it was on First John. And it's kind of funny, and I'm going to just briefly like preface um, why we're focusing on First John, because in my opinion, um, I was studying it recently, and I was so enjoying it because of the historical factor of why First John is important. Many believe it is one of, if not the last epistles written in the New Testament, and by no better and closer person than Jesus is best for and many believe his cousin, John. Now, what's interesting about this particular book is there's a couple historical things you need to understand. Is that this book is written, they believe, in a time frame 85 to 95 AD. That 10-year period of time is over 30 years after the Apostle Paul's death. Which many of us know that the New Testament, two-thirds, is written by the Apostle Paul. However, many of us don't know that this book is 30 years after he has died. So not only is John the one who was literally the closest physical person to Jesus' ministry, but he was also the only apostle alive at this time. He's seen Jesus is walking days. He's seen church planting and, and figuring out what they're going to do days. He's seen church persecution unbelievably at the hands of Rome and Nero in the A.D. 60s. He has seen everything. And so he writes this book towards the end of his life as almost this like reminder letter. And that's why I love it, because for a lot of us, we look at the Bible and we're like, okay, thousands of years old, don't really know what it has to do with me. But in this particular instance, what we find, and what we're going to find specifically today that I think is going to be interesting, is this letter is a lot more relevant than we give it credit for. So today, what we're going to be focusing on specifically um, is 1 John chapter 2. And in 1 John chapter 2, I'm going to give, uh, just throw myself under the bus here quickly. Uh, I got out of order. I literally preached uh, like one ahead. So we're going to back up because we just did 1 John 3. But this is 1 John part 4, chapter 2. Swing and a miss there. Uh, but, it, but anyway... In my opinion, though, this is why I think John specifically, the most important reason I think he's, he's somebody that has the right to speak is his perspective of faithfulness and suffering is unrivaled. See, Rome tried to boil him in oil and kill him. 
Many believe they also tried to poison him. He was exiled for a period of one to three years, had physical side-by-side time with Jesus, planted churches, was part of missionary journeys, and became uh, bishops of churches or, or pastoring roles. And not only that, but once again, he's lived the full bandwidth of being what I would call, and I would say the most important thing to following Christ today, a resilient disciple. Resiliency, a word that I've been studying and focusing on, and this is kind of a prereq for it as for this first John, but resiliency, what does it mean to follow God in the good and the bad, in the ugly and in the beautiful, in the exiled and the imprisoned and in the free? What does it mean to watch your friends die, your brothers die at the hands of persecution, yet not doubt nor deny who God is? So with that, today, in this particular passage, we are going to be talking about 1 John chapter 2, and specifically, if you were here weeks back, you can go back. We don't post anything online but a podcast, and it's everywhere, so you can just, whatever podcast you look at, if you want to listen to the first part of chapter 2, this is the second part of chapter 2. But today, the title is this, Understanding Your Humanity, Humility, and Holiness. Understanding Your Humanity... Your humility and your holiness. You know, I think this is where a lot of people, we talk about holiness, but do we talk about humanity and humility? And what I mean by that is humanity, a healthy self-awareness, and humility, a healthy self-awareness that's willing to change and be open about, I believe are two of the most um, common denominators of what holiness is. You know, on that, uh, I have, um, if you know this about me, um, I do like to golf, and I golfed a lot in Michigan. And by a lot, some of you guys are like, wow, you must be made of money. No, I just stayed at my parents and golfed with my dad every time. Uh, and then my dad got all these coupons, too. When I was in town, I was like, Dad, I, I like these courses, but at the same time, I mean, I, you know, we, can, we don't need coupons. <laughs> just kidding. Some people are like, what do you, you got something against coupons? Don't judge me. All right, gosh. I'm a coupon guy, too. Dang. I'm, I feel like I'm getting stones thrown at me right now. Anyway. Um, but I'll never forget this. I was golfing here recently. I love living in Phoenix in the summer because you can golf anywhere for $3. <laughs> Actually, they pay you to golf in Phoenix in the summer. Um, but I, but I, remember, I remember, Justin, did you laugh at that or no? No? Okay. We've got, a, we've got a bet going. Justin told me that for every time I can get him to laugh, I can preach five minutes longer. Yeah, okay, I'll keep it going. Yeah, that's, that's a laugh, too. That's three more minutes. Um, but I was golfing at TPC, and it was cheap at the time, and I remember I was there, but it was really hot, and it was a really slow day. And I'll never forget, we were on a, a par three, and to give you idea, it's a really short hole. And it was about 145 yards, and I remember we were putting, and as I'm literally putting, I can hear somebody hit behind me, and then I hear a huge crack into a tree about 20 yards off the green. And if you know anything about golf, you know that you don't tee off a hundred. You really don't hit a ball unless you're 200 or 250 yards out. 140 yards is like you're trying to fight the group in front of you, right? Which obviously I didn't do that. You know, I got other people who fight those battles for me, right? I called down the angel armies like, smite them, God. No, but I did turn around to them. And I looked and I, I just put my hands up. And I look at him and I go, dude, this is 140 yard par three. And the guys, I'll never forget, they yell, he yells, 
He's 95 and can't hit the ball further than 70 yards. If he hits India, we'll buy your whole group beers. <laughs> and it was funny because in all honesty, right, when he said that, it became a story to me. But what was it rooted in it was in a healthy understanding and humility of who he was as a person and how far he could hit the ball, in which he looked almost... It's funny to tell the story, but it, it, it's, it's one of these things. Why I'm saying this is because I think a lot of us, right, that's, I tell you that story because his awareness in who he was and his ability spoke to me about holiness on my part. You know, it's funny because in most golf contexts, that would never be socially acceptable. But the fact that he had such a healthy self-awareness in his lack and disability to hit the ball far is now something where I'm like, God, I need to be aware of my abilities, aware of the things that I'm lacking, aware of the things that I could be approving. And instead of me waiting for the green to clear like this guy and saying, oh, I might be able to hit the green, instead being able to look at my friends and say, yeah, I can't even get close. And isn't that how it is in life sometimes? We go through seasons, situations, circumstance, or have relationships where all we are is, is products of an ulterior reality in which we aren't, we aren't humble, we aren't even really fully human. We're definitely not practicing humility, but man, we sure want to be holy. And what I'm trying to say today is this, is what would it look like is if we actually knew who we were as people? had a healthy self-awareness of who we were as people that then bred a humility in us to not run from our deficiencies, our weaknesses, or our sin, but rather say, God, you can use these two products and make me like you, like the guy at the par three. So with that, let's read. First John chapter two, the second half of the book, and specifically what we're going to focus on is verses 15 through 17 and verses 25 through 29. And I want to give a little disclaimer. Verses 18 through verse 22 is all about antichrists. So we won't be spending a ton of time on that. I know some people are starting to drool when I bring up antichrist. But it is funny because John, like John brings up antichrist. And if you actually research, we're not going to, it's kind of like this weird passage that makes sense in the context, but we're going to take it a different way. But 18 through verse 22 is antichrist. John pretty much says are false messengers, ones who deny the father and the son and ultimately try to tell people to not abide in the teachings of how Jesus lived. So it's just false messengers. So we're going to bypass that. I didn't want people to be like, oh, why are we skipping over antichrist? This is a conspiracy. Theory Church. <laughs> oh, heat-seeking missile there. Sorry. Yeah, we are not the Conspiracy Theory Church. Sorry, guys. Um, you can take it up with our complaints, Pastor. Anyway, 1 John 2, 15 through verse 17. Do not, let, do not love the world nor the things of the world. How do you guys... I mean, that, that seem, seems a little pointed if you think about it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, for some of us, we read these first two and we're like, okay, well, I am, okay, how do I not love the world? Great question. It starts to define the love that he's specifically talking about. For all that is in the world, he's going to define what, so don't, it's not don't love the world, it's rather don't love the world in these specific three ways that everybody loves the world in. And what you're going to find is, this actually has a lot of truth to it. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Once again, skipping the Antichrist passages, jumping down to verse 25. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. I want to stop here and say this as well. Eternal life is not just you're going to heaven. You know what's sad to me, and I, I, it, it's not a failure on the churches that I grew up in's part, but I do think it's a failure on the wider church's part, is every time somebody brings up eternal life, all we can think about is future life, not present life. And what I mean by that is what, what would it mean if we say, okay, God, you know, I have eternal life in you is also to realize that that's not for like a far ahead time, even though it is, it's also for a present time now. That your life can be rooted in eternal life presently while also anticipatorily looking for what is coming in the future. See, I believe that this resilient discipleship, that is ultimately a healthy believer, is one who lives in the eternal life mindset right now. Let's keep reading. It says this. Verse 26, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to, see, to deceive you. Verse 27, as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. We're going to start breaking this down a little bit later, but I'm reading it slow so it sinks in. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, the reason I broke down these passages, right, is the first little passage we read, that 15 to 17, is how we don't love the world. But then this next passage, and this is where it gets interesting, is that he keeps bringing up this abiding. Abide in him. Practice righteousness in him. Walk with him. You don't even need to be taught. Now, the reason he says that, and here's where I'm, I'm going to say this, is I do believe there comes a point in your spiritual maturity where, Christian, where, where church services, yes, they add gas and fuel to the fire, but they are not the fire. See, that's the, that's the thing I think gets confused is we think that this building is the fire and what happens is we get close to it in a cold world to draw heat, not recognizing that actually we were supposed to be the fire that the world draws to and gains heat from. And what I'm trying to challenge us to is this abiding and practicing righteousness is a lifestyle that recognizes we need this, but we need much more to be taught in the word than we need to be taught by Micah. And what, it, what he's really trying to point out is stop trying to come to me. Yes, I am John, and yes, I've seen a lot and done a lot. But I'm going to tell you, if you get with God, there's an anointing in abiding that teaches you more than anybody else could and can help you become more than you ever thought possible. So today, what I want to do with my remaining time is talk about how to recognize what's wrong to start walking rightly. How do we recognize what is wrong to start walking right?
Humility today, if I'm honest, is lacking. Walking in it is so rare in a world that has it all together, has to look successful, has to keep up with the appearances, has to show that it has no flaw or blemish. These things are difficult even for us to come and say, well, am I walking wrongly? I would say this, I can always walk better. And if you're in this room and you're like, oh, you know, I don't have, I feel like I'm pretty perfect. Well, there's other churches for more perfect people. (laughs) So what I want to do is, and and I want to encourage you, uh, I think Ethan's back there, just leave the point on the screen, because if you know, I write dead sea scrolls for points. So, and most of you guys can't read it in the back, so just take a picture and zoom in on it later. Keith's already doing it. Keith, how are you already doing that? (laughs) Anyway, first point. Lust of the flesh. (laughs) I just stopped. Yeah, I didn't even know it was going to bring that much. Is anything natural that you prioritize, give power to, or pervert above the righteousness of God and his spirit? The parts that you trust least typically are the ones he wants to prove himself to you most if you're open. If your feelings dictate your faith more than your faith dictates your feelings, this one's for you. What I'm trying to say, lust of the flesh. Now, when we talk about, okay, loving the world. Now, many of us are like, okay, well, can I get like the bullet point version of this, right? Well, you're getting it right now. Lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes. Now, many of us are like, okay, but those two things sound the same. They're not. And specifically what you find is, and this is actually funny to bring it up, is that the Bible is putting sexual sin and gluttony in the same sentence here. Which, once again, I think is profound, right? Because we have majored on purity culture. However, we've sometimes forgotten that gluttony in Scripture is still on that sin scale of body sin, that sexual sin is. But when we start talking about, right, the lusts of the flesh, the things that we crave in such a way that we prioritize them above God. That's really what I'm trying to get at right now. Right? What are things that we prioritize? And when I say prioritize above God, it's when we actively do something contrary to his word because we can't control the impulse we feel. And see, once again, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on gluttony. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on sexual sin. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on these lusts of the flesh. Because in all honesty, we've probably felt the condemnation and shame about them. And if we could have changed it, we would have done it a long time ago. Why is it that this is the first thing that is started with? And I believe that it's because there's a hard wiring of our fallen humanity that takes the emphasis away from trust, dependency, and reliance on God and prioritizes a man-made experience in which we have feelings of completion and wholeness that are outside of him. See, this is what, and and we talked about this in our town hall, this is what I believe lust of the flesh is coming against, is us reaching for something we believe can bring wholeness and fulfillment that is in Jesus. And when we really start talking about abiding and practicing righteousness, this is what the promise is, is when we practice righteousness and we abide in the vine, producing a fruit that remains, what we're really doing is we're being brought into the completion of who God has called us to be. 
And as sad as it is today, I believe that for a lot of us, when we talk about the lust of the flesh, it's God saying, I want to complete you. And us saying, well, I feel like I can get what I need comfortably by just reaching for these natural vices that everybody has reached for for thousands of years. And it hasn't worked for any of them, but maybe it might work for me. What I'm trying to say today is this, is we have natural urges, right? We have hunger pains. But isn't it interesting, and I believe this is another one we'll talk about in the future, but it's like gluttony had something against it, and that something was habitual practice of fasting. Sexual sin and and, and deviance had something against it, and that's covenant marriage and holiness. What you see is that for every unnatural craving, there was a spiritual answer. And as sad as it is today, some of us, we don't know the righteousness and the abiding that is the answer to the thing that we are lacking in because we haven't been rooted deep enough in it. See, I I fast and pray weekly. And I'm going to tell you this as part of, I don't do it to teach myself that I'm not in control. I do it because I don't need, man doesn't live, right? Jesus is responsible by the bread of this world. It lives by the word of God. And so I want to encourage you, lust of the flesh, this one starts with essentially John's coming out and saying, listen, you are hardwired this way, but we want to rewire you into the wholeness and completion that I believe that you can possess. But now what's interesting, remember there's three of these in the beginning, right? We've got lust of the flesh, then we have lust of the eyes, Number two, the lust of the eyes is the root of idolatry. See, this is, I wish that they would have just spelled idolatry this way. Because all this is, is idolatry, I-D-O-L-A-T-R-Y. Wow, I can't believe I got that right. Idolatry, right? The only way you can, you get an idol is by seeing it and coveting it. And what I'm trying to say today is that I think for a lot of us, we don't realize, i got to keep reading this, but awareness of the darkness is the first step in seeing the light. See, some of us, we want to run from any feelings of ever feeling dark, and that may be even why we run from God, is because we don't want to talk about the things we lack, the darkness we feel, the, the urges that we have. But what we really don't realize is that that's the first step in the healthy direction, is awareness. But comparison and coveting are the quiet killers of Christian faith today. If you don't own your eyes, he can't own your heart. And I want to say this to us as as a church and as people who profess lordship and, and, and faith in Christ is that for a lot of us, this silent killer of comparison, this silent killer of covetedness, I think that's so interesting. If you really think about it, the Ten Commandments, don't murder don't steal. Don't covet. Like, I get the don't have any other gods before me. I get the honor your parents. I get the honor the Sabbath. But don't covet. Like, don't just want what other people have. That seems a little like, you know, God's like, hey, man, you're a little reach in there. But I think it's important for us today to realize that it's, it's what it's fight. Once again, there's an inverse of everything. What coveting is fighting against, right, is completion. And I would even take it this far. What coveting fights against? Contentment. 
Does anybody in here know somebody truly content? Think about that. Proverbs, I've quoted it a billion times, I feel like, in the last month. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is gain. See, I think a lot of us, what we think is is gain is we covet somebody else's, have to gain it, and so we slave away to get the resource, to get the thing that we covet, instead of realizing that actually practicing contentment with godliness, God would bring the things that you need more than you actually realize he ever could. And as sad as it is, I don't believe any of us have met God on, or some of us have not met God on that level, because we've never been people who have ever been able to practice contentment for a long enough season for him to bring the blessing. See, we want the blessing every week. God, I need, God, I need, God, I need. If you start filtering your needs through coveting, how much do you think would stick? And what I'm trying to get at today is that us as believers and followers of Christ is if we can start filtering our needs through contentment instead of coveting, what we might find is we have a lot less that we actually need and we might grow eyes that start to see God as our provider and not our own abilities. <clears throat> Matthew six twenty-two through 23 The eye is the lamp of the body, so if the eye is clear, this particular word actually broken down means healthy and sincere, right? When you think about clear, you're like, okay, well, you know, clear, you can see perfectly straight. No, healthy and sincere. If your eye is healthy and sincere, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad in this particular instance, meaning evil or sinful, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the, that, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great the darkness. How great the darkness when you have an eye that is evil and sinful instead of one that is healthy and sincere. Not one that sees clearly, but one that sees simply. Sincere, si- One that sees in such a way that evilness can't reside inside of it. You know, I was, uh, when I was studying this, I feel like the Lord brought this to mind. LASIK surgery. This procedure that uses a light to reshape the cornea and improve the way the eye focuses on light rays going into the retina in the back of the eye. It was funny, I was sitting there on the, de- on the deck and my mom, I don't know if it was my mom, but oh, it was another friend of mine had LASIK surgery. But I felt like the Lord was like, hey, why don't you look up LASIK? And as I'm starting to read it, I'm like getting like having a moment in which the Lord's like, this is what I try to do when I, when I bring people to me. Is right, is LASIK is about light improvement. And even more than that, This is what the Word of God and the Holy Spirit try to do as well. They try to reshape how we view the world in order by using the light and being more aware of the illumination. And I want to say this to you today is that I think a lot of us, we fight against the reshaping because we've been so used to seeing darkness that it hurts to start believing there could be light. 
And God is such a profound Savior that He does not want you to live in a fallen world just believing that everything's fallen, everything's dark, everything's defeated, everything's awful. When we choose paths of righteousness, when we choose abiding, we choose a procedure in which God says, let me show you some light. Let me make you light. Let me reshape who you are so my light is more present. Why do you think we chose the term fixate? To gaze at with unwavering attention and focus. Some definitions of fixate, to stare at obsessively and compulsively. We chose it on purpose. Because in this day and age, what you don't realize is the greatest attribute you have is your time, sure. But I would also say it's your attention. See, nobody talks about that. Oh, it's your time, it's your time, it's your time. But man, I know plenty of people who know how to use their time well, but their attention is terrible. You know, you can get around somebody and their attention is so different than anybody you've been around that you encounter a profound relationship quickly because their attention is not scuttled. It's not all over the place. It's not distracted, frazzled, or ADD. It's present. It's mindful. It's sincere. It's healthy. See, we chose fixate because I think a lot of us, what we've been used to gazing upon God is, is in the disheveled, in the ADD, in the always stuff going on, in the, we've been looking at God that way and we don't know how to actually give him obsessive. We don't know how to actually give him abandoned attention. A mindfulness that isn't focused on, okay, I've got 12 minutes, but one that literally carves out our lives around a posture of being a disciple. To gaze at with unwavering attention and focus. The third thing, the boastful pride of life is the opposite of the bride of Christ. If we're drinking culture's Kool-Aid, we can't be mad when we don't experience contentment. Status in the kingdom is suffering well. Long obedience in the same direction. Resilient discipleship. And being aware of sandcastles and what actually matters. There are no comfortable crosses. That, you know what's sad to me, I think, is when we come to church, right? And we can sing the songs of God on a cross. We can recognize that we're called to follow him. But then when it actually comes down to the rubber meeting the road in us actually having to suffer, having to go through difficulty, uncertainty, having to go through relational fracture, unmet expectation, having to go through bouts of anxiety or depression, us having to go through these things, it's easy for us to say, well, I chose God because I thought he'd make it easier. No, we choose God because he makes it lighter. And what I mean by that is when you abide and develop these paths of righteousness, it's not about easy, it's about one who carries it alongside. And as sad as it is today, see, I can't carry you and our church can't carry you, but we can point you to a lifestyle in which you can be so rooted in him that you're still going to bear a portion of the weight, but you also realize that you're not carrying it alone. But when you carry the weight alone, that's when the crushing is there. When you carry the weight alone, that's when the doubt creeps in. That's when the unbelief happens, is when we've, we've tried to 
convince ourselves that it is all up to us carrying and not up to us getting close enough to the one who can carry for us. This is the God that we serve. You know, there was another passage of scripture, and I'm going to go through it briefly, that I absolutely loved recently. If I'm honest with you, in the last two to three months, this is the, one of the most profound passages that I have read because of Paul's defense. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 to 27, what you see is that Paul is being challenged on his authority. He's being challenged on his stature. Literally, in some part, parts of Scripture, he's having to defend the fact that he looks sickly. I mean, literally, this guy is against attack after attack, trying to discredit his abilities, trying to discredit his ministry, trying to discredit everything. And instead of defending himself, you know what he does? He literally writes a letter and he says this, tell me someone who has suffered more. You want to know a profound moment is when you don't have to defend yourself. You say, have you suffered and has been as faithful as I have? Let's read it really quickly. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 27. This is Paul's response to people doubting him as a leader in the church. Since many boast according to the flesh, I guess I'll boast also. For you, being so wise, have tolerated the foolish so gladly. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, devours you, takes advantage of you, exalts himself, and hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if I am insane. I more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, one stone, three times shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent floating in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the cities, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among the false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposed. His defense was, I've, wasn't, I've preached to thousands. His defense was, I haven't raised millions of dollars. His defense was, I haven't seen 423 healings and 617 salvations and 412 baptisms. You know what his defense was? I have suffered and been faithful. I have been through the worst that this world could throw at me, and I'm still alive. And he still led me through, and he's still with me. See, his response wasn't, wow, look at me. I built a church. You know how many churches I built? You know how many people are in my school? You know how many staff I have? I drifted for a day and a night in the ocean, hoping. Beaten 39 lashes. You know why that's important is because they believed past a certain point to lash somebody past 40 would equate to death. Three times I've been lashed to the point of what they label as death still here. 
Think about this, right? See, boasting in humanity's pride of life versus boasting in what God has brought you through. See, once again, there's an inverse in everything. Pride of life. Wow, look at all we've done. Look at all God's done. Look at everything. But man, there's so many people who need to know what you have suffered and what you have walked through. There are so many people who need to know your story, and your story will do more than any statistic ever could. We don't track any of our stuff. You know why? Because it's the story. It's the suffering. It's the trial. And that is where we discover the fulfillment, is when we have overcome in a way that can only be attributed to God carrying us through. See, there's a bedrock of a life formed in him that is so strong that you can't walk away from it. I tell people that story, this story all the time because when we moved here, we knew two people in the city. That was two years ago. We moved here, we knew two people in the city and we just had a word from God and day after day, week after week, month after month, the Lord has always provided for us. And I can't walk away from a reliance on him because I've walked through seasons in which I've so relied on him that I realized his reliance is better than my ability. The last one is this. Your practices of abiding determine the depths of which you will know God. Your habits will make you holy if you allow your humility to admit where you are weak and from that place where to start. If we aim for nothing, we'll be sure to hit it. You know what's sad is that a lot of us, we don't realize that sitting in this place, the hardest and the darkest thing is actually where God wants to start. Because what happens when you overcome the hardest and the darkest is you start to realize that if you can overcome the thing that you never thought you could, you can overcome anything. You want to know something is that I believe the fallen world, a product of that is just a defeated mind. You know how many believers and people I talk to who are just defeated? Defeated. And as sad as it is, I pray that that never be said of me and my family and the church that we lead is that we, now I'm not saying we don't feel weak, we don't feel vulnerable, we don't feel, but I'll tell you this, we never think that we're out. Never think that we're dead. Never think that we're done. And I pray today that as followers of Christ, we realize that, that for some of us, what we're feeling, what we're lacking, and the thing that we have been struggling with so long is the habits of abiding. The practices of righteousness, laser-focused on that area, can be the key to not just fulfillment, but to the motivation needed for entire life to be changed. Take the hard thing head on. Focus on the thing that you never thought you could have overcome. Do the thing that you are looking at God and saying, man, I don't. Because God's not looking at you and saying, oh, you can't do it. He's looking at you and saying, do you believe we can do it together? Can we actually stand on that? Because for some of us, when I even said that, the defeated mindset said, yeah, but you don't know. Can we believe that with him, we can do it? In closing, 1 John 3, 27, as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. 
And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and not a lie, it has taught you to abide in him. Your fruit, the fruit that remains, should show a gardener at work. If the fruit is good, there's no doubt of the nature of the roots in the hands that have helped cultivate it. Stand to your feet. If you know, we just have a a practice here in which I write a prayer from the message and just read it over our church. So wherever you are and whatever your posture for receiving is, I pray that this meets you where you are. God today teaches teaches humility that from a place of self-awareness unto obedience is where spiritual health comes from. May we truly be dead to sin. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life give us a new path to walk, trail to trust you upon, and heart that submits. We want to abide in the vine unto the fruit that remains. Not fruit that is merely pleasing to the eye and sweet to the taste, but a fruit that is so unique and original to the plant that the gardener never forgets what was produced upon its leaves. God, help us to greater understand our humanity, practice greater humility, and greater sacrifice unto holiness. Father, may we be a church where our sin and shame are brought to you, our struggles and stumbles are brought to you. And it is always said that we were diligent in seeking you and we were pure in heart that we're able to see God. Today, you have permission to place us upon the potter's wheel of your divine plan and reshape and form us into your intended purposes. We make room for the one who purchased a place we had no right inheriting. Creator, you have the freedom to create in us again.